Hello and welcome to the August 2012 Respiratory Care Podcast. This is Dean Hess along with Sarah Moore. Again, this month we have a very full issue. So Sarah, let's get started. Our first paper is by RE and its title is An In Vitro Evaluation of Aerosol Delivery Through Tracheostomy and Endotracheal Tubes Using Different Interfaces. The purpose of this study was to compare aerosol delivery via tracheostomy tubes and endotracheal tubes using interfaces such as T-piece, tracheostomy collar, and manual resuscitation bag. A teaching mannequin was intubated with either an 8mm inner diameter endotracheal tube or an 8mm inner diameter tracheostomy tube. Both bronchi were connected to a collecting filter. The mannequin was attached to a sinusoidal pump simulating the breathing pattern of a spontaneously breathing adult with a tidal volume of 450 milliliter, respiratory rate 20 breaths per minute, and an inspiratory-expiratory ratio of 1 to 2. Albuterol was nebulized through a jet nebulizer using each airway and interface as appropriate. Drug on the filter was eluted and analyzed with spectrophotometry. A greater percentage of the nominal dose was delivered via tracheostomy tube than endotracheal tube with both T-piece and manual resuscitation bag. Use of the manual resuscitation bag with both tracheostomy tube and endotracheal tube increased lung dose more than threefold. Inhaled dose with tracheostomy collar was less than T-piece with a tracheostomy tube. The authors conclude that in this adult model of spontaneous ventilation, aerosol therapy through an endotracheal tube was less efficient than with a tracheostomy tube, while the manual resuscitation bag was more efficient than a T-piece or a tracheostomy collar. Previous research reporting factors influencing aerosol delivery in intubated patients has been largely focused on the endotracheal tube during mechanical ventilation, with little comparative analysis of effect of types of artificial airways and their interfaces on aerosol delivery during spontaneous breathing. Ari et al. found a greater percentage of the dose was delivered with the tracheostomy tube than with the endotracheal tube. Use of a manual resuscitation bag increased dose delivery more than threefold. For the tracheostomy tube, inhaled dose with a tracheostomy cop was less than with a T-piece. These data have some important implications for clinical practice. As Don points out in his editorial, this paper clarifies the effect of various interfaces on aerosol delivery in intubated, spontaneously breathing patients. Precision and Accuracy of Oxygen Flow Meters Used at Hospital Settings is by Davidson et al. The purpose of this study was to analyze the precision and accuracy of flow meters used in hospital settings. An experimental study was performed to test oxygen flow meters from a tertiary hospital by using a calibrated flow analyzer. Used and new flow meter accuracy was tested by reading in the gas analyzer a single measurement at flow rates of 1, 3, 5, and 10 liters per minute in 91 flow meters. Flow meter precision was tested by using three repetitive measurements set at flow rates of 1, 3, 5, and 10 liters per minute in 11 flow meters. The mean measured flows were slightly lower than the stipulated flow at 1 liter per minute, very close for 3 liters per minute, and higher for the 5 and 10 liters per minute flows. There was a large variability among the measurements from different flow meters, mainly at low flows of 1 or 3 liters per 
minute. There was no difference between new and used flow meters at the flows measured except at 10 liters per minute. Precision analysis showed a good reproducibility in three repetitive measurements for each flow. The authors concluded that the flow meters tested showed good precision and poor accuracy. Oxygen flow meters are one of the most commonly used devices in respiratory care. Most clinicians never question their accuracy. The authors of this paper made the anecdotal observation that, when changing from one oxygen flow meter to another, there was sometimes a different oxygen saturation, even with the same oxygen flow setting as before. This observation provided the basis for this study. The findings of this study are sobering and suggest that we should be more critical of the accuracy of these simple devices. Despite the inaccuracies that they identified, there was good reproducibility for individual flow meters. As Howard suggests in his editorial, reassessment of oxygen saturation is mandatory if the oxygen flow meter is changed. Next, we have the paper by Borg, The Measurement of Lung Volumes Using Body Plethysmography, a Comparison of Methodologies. The objective of this study was to determine whether differences in functional residual capacity, vital capacity, residual volume, and total lung capacity obtained using preferred and alternate measurement and calculation methodologies exist in a clinical setting. Following spirometry, static lung volumes were measured via body plethysmography using the preferred and alternate methods in random order. Volumes were calculated using the preferred and alternate calculation methods. Subjects were classified according to the standard ventilatory function interpretive strategies. Differences of the means between the measurement methods and calculation methods were assessed. Small differences of less than 150 milliliters in the means for vital capacity and total lung capacity and residual volume and total lung capacity were found in the normal and restricted groups, respectively. No significant differences in static lung volume parameters were found in subjects with airflow obstruction. There were 12 of 108 cases that changed ventilatory function classification between methods, with the alternate method delivering a lower inspiratory capacity and total lung capacity without a change in residual volume in 66% of this subgroup. Identical results were obtained when data were analyzed using both calculation methods. The authors concluded that differences in static lung volumes obtained using the preferred and alternate measurement methodologies exist in the clinical setting in select classification groups and individuals. Differing calculation methods dependent on the measurement method used may be unnecessary. Body plethysmography is the standard practice for measurement of static lung volumes. Borg and Thompson compared the preferred and alternate methodologies described in the ATS-ERS standardization of static lung volumes document. Small differences in the means for lung volumes were found in the normal and restricted groups, but no significant differences were found in subjects with airflow obstruction. Thus, different calculation methods dependent on measurement method used may be unnecessary. As Graham discusses in his editorial, pulmonary function testing standards are based largely on the consensus of experts. Studies such as this are important to validate such standards and to improve current practice. 
National Survey of Airway Management Training in United States Internal Medicine-Based Critical Care Fellowship Programs is by Joffe et al. The primary aim of this study was to describe the current state of airway education of internal medicine-based critical care fellowship programs. Between February 1st and April 30th, 2011, program directors of all three-year combined pulmonary critical care and two-year multidisciplinary critical care medicine programs in the United States were invited to complete an online survey. Non-respondents were sent automated reminders, were contacted via email or or by telephone. The overall response proportion was 66% of 168 programs. 58% of programs reported a designated airway rotation, chiefly occurring from one month during the first year of training. 32% reported having a director of airway education, and 70% reported incorporating simulation-based airway education. 95% reported provision of supervised airway experience during fellowship. Commonly used airway management devices, including video laryngoscopes, intubating stylets, supraglottic airway devices, and fiber optic bronchoscopes were reportedly available to trainees. However, 73% reported 10 or fewer uses of a supraglottic airway device, 60% reported 25 or fewer uses of intubating stylets, 73% reported 30 or fewer uses of a video laryngoscope, and 65% reported 10 or fewer flexible fiber optic intubations. Estimates of the required number of procedures to ensure competence have varied widely. The authors conclude that the majority of programs have a formal airway management program incorporating a variety of intubation techniques, but overall experience varies widely. Intensivists may be primarily responsible for airway management in non-operating room locations. Jaffe found that, although the majority of programs have a formal airway management program, overall experience varies widely. Commonly used airway management devices, such as video laryngoscopes, intubating stylets, supraglottic airway devices, and fiber optic bronchoscopes are available to trainees, but the majority of programs reported that these are used infrequently. The paper, Short-Term Effects of Using Pedometers to Increase Daily Physical Activity in Smokers, a Randomized Trial, is by Covellis et al. The objective of this study was to investigate the short-term effects of a protocol using a pedometer or an informative booklet to increase daily physical activity in apparently healthy smokers who reached or did not reach the minimum public health recommendation of 10,000 steps per day. Subjects were randomly assigned to two groups, a pedometer group, which wore a pedometer every day during one month, aiming to achieve 10,000 steps a day, and a booklet group, which received a booklet with encouragement to walk as much as possible in everyday life. Each group was subdivided according to their baseline daily physical activity level as active or inactive. Only the physically inactive pedometer group increased significantly its daily physical activity with a concomitant increase in the six-minute walk test distance. In pedometer group, post-pre-change in steps per day correlated significantly with baseline number of steps per day, but not with six-minute walk distance. In the inactive subjects, there were significant correlation between steps per day and cigarette smoke per day, pack years, and Fagerstrom questionnaire.
Furthermore, improvement in steps per day in the inactive subjects of pedometer group was correlated with baseline cigarettes smoked per day, pack years, and the Fakerstrom questionnaire. The authors concluded that physically inactive smokers improve their daily physical activity level by using a pedometer, and a larger improvement occurs in subjects with the lowest levels of physical activity. Many listeners may not be aware that it is recommended for adults to walk a minimum of 10,000 steps per day to be considered physically active. The pedometer, a small device that counts steps, has been used to monitor and or motivate physical activity in various populations. Covellis et al. investigated the short-term effects of a protocol using a pedometer or an informative booklet to increase daily physical activity in apparently healthy smokers who did not achieve this recommendation. Only the pedometer increased significantly daily physical activity with a concomitant increase in the six-minute walking distance. The findings of this study suggest that use of a pedometer might be useful to improve the physical activity of inactive smokers. Next, we have the paper by Lee, Upper Airway Fat Tissue Distribution Differences in Patients with Obstructive Sleep Apnea and Controls, as well as its effects on retropalatal mechanical loads. The objective of this study was to validate the hypothesis that fat tissue accumulation adjacent to the upper airway contributes to a predisposition to obstructive sleep apnea, irrespective of body mass index, as well as investigate the effect of the volume of fat tissue on pharyngeal mechanical loads. 14 subjects and 14 controls were enrolled in the study. Pharyngeal anatomy, specifically the fat tissue volume in the retropalatal region and retroglossal region, were evaluating using magnetic resonance imaging. Whether the subjects had a segmental closing pressure higher than the atmospheric pressure was determined by pharyngoscopy under general anesthesia. The difference in fat tissue distribution between patients with OSA and BMI-matched controls was investigated. Fat tissue distributions in subjects with positive or negative segmental closing pressure were also compared. Significant differences were present between controls and patients with OSA in volumes of parapharyngeal fat pad and fat of soft palate, as well as proportion of parapharyngeal fat pad to the volume of total lateral pharyngeal soft tissues. The volume of pharyngeal cavity, neck circumference, and volume of subcutaneous fat tissues were not significantly different statistically. Volume of fat in soft palate and parapharyngeal fat pad in retropalatal and retroglossal region were significant predictors of OSA. The volume of fat in the soft palate and parapharyngeal fat pad was higher in participants with positive retropalatal closing pressure. Participants with positive retroglossal closing pressure had increased volumes of the tongue and the parapharyngeal fat pad. The authors conclude that patients with OSA have more fat tissue adjacent to the pharyngeal cavity than their BMI-matched controls. Fats deposited around the upper airway may contribute to the collapsibility of retropalatal and retroglossal airway in both patients and controls.
Lee et al. evaluated pharyngeal anatomy using magnetic resonance imaging and segmental closing pressure. Subjects with OSA were compared with controls matched for body mass index. The volume of fat in soft palate and parapharyngeal fat pad in retropalatal and retroglossal region were significant predictors of OSA. Interestingly, fat deposited around the upper airway may contribute to the collapsibility of retropalatal and retroglossal airway in both patients and controls. Thus, the central fat distribution that predisposes to obstructive sleep apnea may occur at a lower BMI. Using statistical techniques to predict dynamic arterial PCO2 in patients with COPD during maximum exercise is by Chuang et al. The objective of this study was to perform a number of statistical techniques on end-tidal PCO2 and its interaction with other physiologic variables during exercise testing in order to improve our ability to predict PACO2. 47 men with COPD underwent both pulmonary function testing and incremental exercise testing until limited by symptoms. Arterial blood gases and exercise physiological measurements were performed during maximal exercise testing. The prediction equations for PaCO2 were generated using regression techniques with the leave-one-out cross-validation technique. 41 patients were included in the final analysis after 6 patients were excluded due to inadequate data collection. The best prediction equation for PaCO2 was determined based on end-tidal PCO2, lung diffusing capacity, tidal volume, slow vital capacity, and maximum expiratory pressure. The authors conclude that a validated mixed-model regression-derived equation yields a predicted PaCO2 trend during exercise that can be helpful when interpreting exercise testing to determine gradient of arterial PCO2 to end-tidal PCO2 with exercise-induced hypercapnia. PaCO2 as measured during exercise in patients with COPD is poorly predicted from lung function testing and non-invasive measurements such as end-tidal PCO2. Chung et al. used statistical techniques to predict dynamic PaCO2 in patients with COPD during maximum exercise. They were able to derive a predictive equation for PaCO2 trend during exercise, which may be helpful to detect exercise induced hypercapnia. Next we have the paper by Pathok, Evaluation of Solitary Pulmonary Nodule in Human Immunodeficiency Virus Infected Patients. The objective of this study was to define the etiology of solitary pulmonary nodule in HIV-infected patients and examine efficacy of diagnostic testing for solitary pulmonary nodule. The authors performed a retrospective chart review of HIV-infected patients admitted to a designated AIDS center. Microbiological and histopathological specimens from sputum, bronchoalveolar lavage, and biopsies were analyzed. Charts were fully analyzed from time of admission until definitive diagnosis or loss to follow-up. During the 10-year observational period, 10 of 5,000 HIV-infected patients admitted to the hospital were diagnosed with solitary pulmonary nodule via chest radiography or computed tomography. Among these 10 patients, 6 had a definitive diagnosis. Underlying etiologies included infection in 5 
and lung adenocarcinoma in one. None were identified in the remaining four subjects. Sputum analysis provided no diagnostic value in discovering pathogenesis in any of these cases. Fiber-optic bronchoscopy with bronchoalveolar lavage and transbronchial biopsy were diagnostic in three cases, while CT-guided percutaneous transthoracic needle biopsy was diagnostic in two cases. One patient required open lung biopsy. The authors conclude that etiologies of solitary pulmonary nodule in HIV-infected patients are varied and difficult to diagnose. In this study, solitary pulmonary nodule was attributable to infectious etiology in 50% of cases. Speedum analysis was of no diagnostic value. Biopsy is necessary for definitive diagnosis and treatment. Common Etiology, Diagnostic Techniques, and Guidelines to Assess a Solitary Pulmonary Nodule in Patients with HIV Infection have not been established. The important findings in this study were that sputum analysis is of no diagnostic value and biopsy is necessary for definitive diagnosis and treatment. Development of an instrument for a primary airway provider's performance with an ICU multidisciplinary team in pediatric respiratory failure using simulation is by Nishisaki et al. The objective of this study was to develop a scoring system that can assess the multidisciplinary management of respiratory failure in a pediatric ICU. In a single tertiary pediatric ICU, the authors conducted a simulation-based evaluation in a patient care area auxiliary to the ICU. The subjects were pediatric and emergency medicine residents, nurses, and respiratory therapists who work in the pediatric ICU. A multidisciplinary focus group with experienced providers in pediatric ICU airway management and patient safety specialists was formed. A task-based scoring instrument was developed to evaluate a primary airway provider's performance through healthcare failure mode and effect analysis. Reliability and validity of the instrument were evaluated using multidisciplinary simulation-based airway management training sessions. Each session was evaluated by three independent expert raters. A global assessment of the team performance and the previous experience and training were used to evaluate the validity of the instrument. The Just-In-Time Pediatric Airway Provider Performance Scale Version 3 with 34 task-based items was developed. 85 teams led by resident airway providers were evaluated by three raters. The intra-class correlation coefficient for raters was 0.64. The performance scale score correlated well with the global rating scale. Mean total scores across the teams were positively associated with resident previous training participation, suggesting good validity of the scale. The authors conclude that reliability and validity evaluation supports the developed scale as a task-based scoring instrument for a primary airway provider's performance. Simulation-based education and evaluation are used increasingly in healthcare. These authors developed an instrument for primary airway providers' performance in an ICU multidisciplinary team. They found that the reliability and validity of this instrument, the Just-In-Time Pediatric Airway Provider Performance Scale, supports its use. Bourdain et al. present their paper, Comparison of Alpha-200 and Cough Assist as Intermittent Positive Pressure Breathing Devices, a Bench Study. 
The authors assessed the impact of various artificial airways on the ability of the Alpha 200 and the cough assist to generate insufflated volume. Insufflated volume and pressure at the airway opening in a lung model were measured under two conditions of compliance, a single resistance, and two set pressures. The Alpha 200 was set at two inflation flows, whereas cough assist was set at its highest value. Measurements were done without and with different sized endotracheal tubes and tracheostomy cannula. The relationships between insufflated volume and measured pressure were analyzed using linear regressions. The slopes and intercepts of the control relationship between insufflated volume and pressure were significantly greater with alpha 200 at each set flow than with the cough assist. As artificial airways were used, the insufflated volume did not differ from the control with cough assist, whereas the alpha 200 it increased at each flow setting and for all mechanical conditions. The largest differences in insufflated volume between the two devices were observed for the largest endotracheal tubes and tracheostomy cannula and the lowest inflation flow setting in the alpha 200. These results can be explained in terms of how the devices function as cough assist adapts by increasing flow while alpha 200 adapts by increasing inspiratory time. The authors conclude that in the presence of artificial airways the insufflated volume generated by the cough assist device was significantly lower than that generated by the alpha 200 device. The Alpha 200 used in this study is an IPPB device, whereas the cough assist is a mechanical insufflator exufflator used to remove secretions in patients with inefficient cough. In Europe, both are used for intubated or tracheostomized patients. In a lung model with an artificial airway, these authors found that the insufflated volume generated by the cough assist device was significantly lower than that generated by the Alpha 200 device. As acknowledged by the authors, an important limitation of this study is that, as an in vitro study, it may be difficult to extrapolate the results to clinical use of the devices. Next we have the paper, Chest Radiography Validity in Screening Pulmonary Tuberculosis in Immigrants from a High Burden Country by Moore and colleagues. This study aimed to determine the validity of chest x-ray screening in detecting radiological findings compatible with active pulmonary TB or with old healed TB. All Ethiopian immigrants to Israel between 2001 and 2005 received a chest x-ray before emigration. Immigrants whose chest x-ray demonstrated pulmonary TB or old healed TB were evaluated, treated, and followed up for one year after arrival. The end point of this historical cohort study was a diagnosis of active pulmonary disease within the study period. Chest radiography was performed on 13,379 immigrants. Changes suggesting TB were identified in 1.1% of those, and 46 were diagnosed with active pulmonary TB. Sensitivity, specificity, and positive predictive value of a chest x-ray suggesting pulmonary TB were 80.1%, 99.2%, and 31% respectively. As pulmonary TB prevalence in this cohort is 0.4%, post-test odds for chest x-ray suggestive of TB were 75.5%. Changes suggesting old healed TB were identified in 1.9% immigrants, 
Of those, 5.8% developed active TB within one year following arrival. Sensitivity, specificity, and positive predictive value of chest x-ray suggestive of an old healed TB were 17.2%, 98.2%, and 5.8% respectively, when active TB during the first year was the endpoint. In this study, 291 chest x-rays were required to detect one active pulmonary TB patient, costing $5,802. The authors conclude that the chest x-ray is a valid valid and cost-saving tool for screening active pulmonary TB in immigrants originating in high-burden countries and is beneficial in detecting old healed TB in immigrants who are at a higher risk for developing active pulmonary tuberculosis. Although it has declined in developed countries, the incidence of TB in immigrants from high-burden countries has increased. Moore et al. assessed the validity of chest radiography in screening pulmonary TB in immigrants from a high-burden country. They found that chest radiography was a valid and cost-saving tool for screening of active pulmonary tuberculosis in immigrants originating in high-burden countries. 291 chest x-rays were required to detect one patient with active tuberculosis, costing $5,802. Our final research paper this month is A Survey of Non-Invasive Ventilation Practices in a Respiratory ICU of North India by Sharma and colleagues. This was an observational study to determine the indications and outcomes of patients requiring NIV in the respiratory ICU of a tertiary care hospital. All patients with acute respiratory failure requiring NIV were included in the study. NIV was delivered through critical care ventilators using an oronasal mask. The disease severity and new onset organ dysfunction was calculated using the Apache 2 and SOFA scores respectively. A multivariate logistic regression model was used to analyze the factors predicting NIV failure. There were 92 patients who received 101 NIV administrations during the study period. The most common causes of hypoxemic and hypercapnic respiratory failure were ARDS and COPD, respectively. There was significant improvement in heart rate and respiratory rate after 1, 2, and 4 hours compared to the baseline in both the groups. Of the NIV applications, 53.5% required endotracheal intubation, with the number being significantly higher in hypoxemic compared to hypercapnic acute respiratory failure. The PaO2 to FiO2 ratio, measured after one hour of NIV application, had significant impact on outcome in patients with hypoxemic but not hypercapnic respiratory failure. On multivariate logistic regression analysis, baseline Apache 2 score, the change in SOFA score, hypoxemic respiratory failure, and change in the ratio of PaO2 to FiO2 at one hour from baseline were all associated with NIV failure. The authors conclude that NIV was found to be a useful modality in the management of patients with hypercapnic versus hypoxemic respiratory failure. The severity of illness at admission, new onset organ dysfunction, hypoxemic acute respiratory failure, and delay in improvement in the ratio of PaO2 to FiO2 at one hour from baseline are independent predictors of NIV failure. 
This might have first appeared to be a regional study with local implications. However, the predictors of NIV failure are likely generalizable to any hospital in the world. Importantly, the authors found that the severity of illness at admission, new onset organ dysfunction, hypoxemic respiratory failure, and lack of improvement in oxygenation at one hour after NIV initiation are independent predictors of NIV failure. These findings may be useful in the application of NIV for any patient anywhere in the world. This month, we publish reviews on severe exercise-induced hypoxemia and on nebulized corticosteroids in asthma and COPD. Our case reports are on pulmonary zygomycosis, extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, catamenial pneumothorax, and refractory hypoxemia in a patient with high intracranial pressure. The teaching case relates to a patient with subcutaneous emphysema following endotracheal intubation. To receive the contents of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www.rcjournal.com. There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues. Thank you.